Okay, so Harley, round two here at Equity Derivatives Conference, the Kiss on the Road series. This time we're sitting down with my friend Chase Muller. Chase, you are with One River Asset Management, which is well known for the work of Eric Peters, who is the founder of One River. You guys are about $3 billion in AUM, is that right? And you have a series of hedge funds or, or individual funds that tackle different issues. I mean, one of the things Eric is well known for is kind of the single case fund, right? So launching an inflation fund or launching a fund designed to take advantage of XYZ. If I remember correctly, there's you know, been everything ranging from currency funds to inflation funds. You're kind of the general macro space, right? Um, and where you and I have interacted in the past has largely been around interest rate volatility components, et cetera. This to me is a really interesting time. So Harley and I have fought back and forth about his mistakes around inflation all the time. He has correctly called the Fed behavior dynamic in terms of are they going to stick to a higher for longer sort of framework. When you look at the world of inflation and interest rates, et cetera, where do you come out in terms of what's actually happening here and is this an opportunity in duration or is this just the first of many salvos to come that are ultimately going to really end up blowing the fixed income guys out of the water? Yeah, I think it's, it's a, it's just such a complex topic, it is, uh, yeah. but we'll do, we'll do, we'll do it 30 seconds or less. Yeah, exactly. Though. Yeah. We'll nail it. Um, I think that the interesting thing is the shape of the curve, right? So I think that right now the, is there an opportunity in duration? Tell me what part of the duration curve. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, and I think that's, you know, the devil's always in the details when you when you start talking about that. But I think that I think the Fed really wants to avoid cutting too soon because they want to see inflation come down. The employment market is still so tight in a number of spaces. Obviously, we're seeing signs that that's starting to turn. Uh, but what is it going to take for them to feel comfortable easing policy? I think the I expect them to 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 remain on pa to pause in June. So in a couple of weeks, I expect them to be to pause, and I think they'll try to stay there as long as they can. I think they a lot of people think they're in a restrictive place, and I think they probably are. We're seeing that you and I have talked about some of the things that we're seeing under the surface um, that is showing how how at risk the economy is. Yeah, and the rate sensitive sectors have responded very, very rapidly, very even rapidly. if people don't want to acknowledge it. Yeah. And we've seen what we're seeing is in the in the data, we're seeing just a bifurcation between the hard data yep. and the soft survey data. And I think that's really what comes from high inflation. People don't feel like they're doing well, right? Everything's more expensive. Um, and but their their earnings are growing. They're making more money. But so are their costs. And that's something you don't feel as tangibly as opposed to your paycheck. Hey, my paycheck's up five percent more. I'm wealthier, but in reality, you might not be because everything else is going up by six or 7%. And so I think that's where you're coming out in the survey data. And that's why the survey data has been so pessimistic in the soft data on those sides, whereas the hard data still is doing well, because we're in a nominal growth environment, right? So when you have a nominal growth, the hard data is going to continue to do well. And I think that's part of the reason why equity earnings have been so stable. It's why equities have rebounded aggressively. Um, it's because we're in this nominal illusion of of growth and but you can still feel more pessimistic so how does that translate to rates well but before you move on from that i just want to actually specify what you're hitting on here and so this is this is actually a super important point right which is 
there is a material divergence that has emerged between the sentiment data and things like the ISM surveys, et cetera. These are all sentiment indexes that are effectively not asking you for quantitative, how much of your shipments or your orders versus last, but like basically how do you feel about your shipments or your orders relative to where they were, right? Or what's your expectation going forward? And we're seeing that divergence take on some really interesting characteristics. One of them, of course, is, is that Republicans are dramatically less bullish about the, the outlook than Democrats are, for example. Everybody's increasingly less bullish, but there's a huge bifurcation, right? And we see this in things like the small business surveys, et cetera, which tend to skew towards Republicans. So the data is not quite as bad as the survey data, which is kind of a thank God, because the survey data would suggest we're in the midst of 2008 or even 2020 in some situations. But you're saying that the, you know, the hard data is still holding up and that, that that could very well be a function just of the absolute nominal characteristics of what we're experiencing. That's exactly right. And I think that there's, I mean, part of it's the employment sector's still relatively tight. I mean, we can talk about nuances of subtle changes in the, in the employment because I think we are on the verge of that inflection point, but that's a bit more of a forecast than anything else. Yeah. Um, but I think it, as long as people are well employed, their earnings are going up, consumption will continue. Um, but that, that's going to stop at some point. I mean, the question is, is a recession coming? And I think that leads to your question of what do you think about duration right yeah. now? The answer to that question is yes, and a recession is coming. I don't know when, <laughs> right? That's the hard part. I, I will 100% say recession is coming. It's not. So it's you not don't fall in the me. camp that says, well, we're never going to have a, a recession again. <laughs> yeah, no, okay, I mean, all right. Just making sure. Just making sure. We're establishing clear. your bona fides. <laughs> hey, hang on. But, you know, before we leave, leave inflation, I mean, you know, Mike, all I got to say to you is who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? But ignoring that small detail, let's drill down a second over here. I really want to know what is the exact point on the yield curve that's the wrong number. And I say this because like people look at twos, tens, look at thirties, yep. forties, look at a lot of places. I will tell you, I'll, I'll give you a, you know, a heads up here. My view is that the one year rate is 520. The one year forward rate is 360. So basically uh, to make the math all work, the Fed's got to cut of rates have to magically drop 160 basis points in a year to make that break even. So I think the one year versus the one one, I hate talking forward rates people, um, that's the wrong number here because you need a recession, not tomorrow, you need yesterday. Like we should be a depression right now for the Fed to do seven cuts in the next, and I don't think they're cutting until next year. So it's really like, but where, where do you, where's the wrong part of the curve? And we could save for the end, but, and what's the trade you do? I, I think this is probably not great conversation when I just say I completely agree with you because but I would take it a step further and say that there's so much cuts priced into that forward curve but one of the things that needs to happen is there's some probability that the Fed does that it's not for certain so in my opinion the market's actually pricing more aggressive cuts because there's only a I don't know call it a 60% probability that they get there and they do those cuts so if you think about it from that perspective if you say there's 150 basis points of cuts priced into that one year forward point but there's only a 50% probability that they actually cut, then that means the market's pricing in, the Fed's going to cut 300 basis points. But I think that's probably, but, but yeah, so I think that's actually, I, I actually think that's part of the resolution between the two of you, right? So you're saying absolutely there's going to be a recession next month, right? Um, last month. Last month, there yeah. we go. And what you're highlighting is, is that the quote-unquote forecast that's embedded in the one-year, one-year, as Harley's pointing out, isn't actually everybody agreeing that there's going to be seven cuts. It's some fraction of the market saying there's going to be no cuts, 
and some fraction of the market saying there's going to be we're going to zero. Right, we're going to go back to zero. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, and so we're effectively stuck in that tension point in between the two, where it's like Schrodinger's cat until we open the box and we figure out did we have a recession, did we have the financial crisis that caused the Fed to engage in this behavior, that we actually end up at that point, right? Right. I think what. So it's short in the one year, one year, the best ticket out there? He's saying vol, effectively, or a straddle on the one year, one year is probably the best trade. I think if you buy a one year straddle at 165, you got a problem. Normal, sorry, vol. Yeah, I, I'm not a big. Which is probably why it's at, why it's I think at that's 165. Why, I think that's exactly what I, right. my next point is. Like, I'm not sure that you want to be, um, to be short that vol, but you, I think that you can structure trades that say we're not going to be in this range, so you can effectively be right. long vol without trying to. It, it's actually one of the things that I'm looking at, you know, in trades that I'm constructing right now. So, shockingly, if you wanted to bet on zero rates, right? So you were going to buy a, you know, Fed funds uh, December 24 at you know 99.75 sort of thing, right? To get you to that level, that option is actually carrying a fair amount of value, right? I mean, this is exactly the point that the market has actually got this bimodal tension in it. And that's why the interest rate is really high, because otherwise there is a, basically a free trade, right? We all know exactly as you're saying, Harley, that 360 is the one answer that is almost certainly not going to happen. It's either five or it's zero is, you know, the much more likely description of this. Now you're zero, Mike, right? I'm on the zero side. And you are where? You got to pick one. That's a good question. Um, I, I probably come out. I'm at the zero. five camp, so just so we could. I probably come out on the zero side, because I do think that, I think there there are so many accidents waiting to happen. I mean, we've the last six months have been characterized by accidents that have been isolated and contained. We had the LDI crisis in the UK. We had the banking crisis in the US. None of those spilled over into other asset classes. None of those spilled over into the real economy because we're still in such a strong nominal growth environment. And I think the environment where you do get to 5% is that you do get this nominal growth that prevents the credit cycle from actually biting. Because yep. I think that's the key. And I guess I come out to the point where we have seen the, the impact of higher rates bite on these small, not small, these sectors of the economy so far. And I suspect that we're going to see more of those. Mm -hmm. And I don't know which one is going to be the one that tips over and starts the domino cascading down. But I do still believe that contraction in credit growth in a hyper-financialized economy will have massive ramifications down the line. Not just contraction I, in real terms, by the way. We're also seeing it in nominal terms I think in as nominal, well. Eventually yeah. that will happen. Yeah. No, it's already happening. Yeah, it's happening. We already are seeing it. Um, and so that, that's where I come out, and that's why I lean towards the zero. I definitely am very sympathetic, and I believe that inflation is going to be stickier and higher than longer. One of the things I do feel very confident about is that we are – going to not only see higher inflation than we saw in the previous cycles, we're going to see higher inflation volatility, which is why I think we could get to zero. We could quickly go back higher. I, I to totally agree. And by the way, I, my complaint about Fed policy, and Harley knows this, is, is that actually by focusing on crushing down demand as compared to building up supply and dealing with the short-term ramifications of that, we haven't solved the problem. We've just compressed the balloon for a few moments. And it's going to come right back. How do you get higher inflation if the Fed's taking rates to zero? Because they're not cutting until either unemployment's at four six no, or he, inflation's he, at two handles. He's, he's saying absolutely. The inflation will go down, and then the minute the, they lift 
they attempt to re-stimulate the economy because we haven't actually addressed the underlying supply dynamics, Correct. it comes back 10 times worse. Okay, so it's like, like a five-year process. Yes, yes, I'm not, I mean, Fair enough. well, one year, one year gets us to two years already, so we're already talking in yeah. the, the, maybe it's a two to 10-year process, but yeah, I don't know when. I mean, the, 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 the weird part is, is that effectively what we're describing is the one-year, one-year should be at zero, the three-year, one-year should be at five. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. And, and that's sort of the problem that that creates, and again, this is exactly my concern with what the Fed has done, is I would argue the Fed has injected volatility into the mix through their policy responses that is going to echo for a very, very long time. And we've actually wasted an incredible amount of time that we could have used saying, okay, we're going to prioritize actually making the investments that allow us to decouple, that allow us to you know, uh, build robustness in the supply chain, the whole point of keeping interest rates low was that it was going to facilitate our transition to something. And we basically spent that time like the grasshopper and the, and the grasshopper, you know, fiddling away as compared to packing stuff away for the winter. Right now we're dealing with the ramifications of it. And as Hugh Pill points out, if you're in the UK, like empirically, you are poor, right? Those, you know, those who unfortunately are UK citizens are unquestionably poorer today than they were three years ago through a combination of terrible policy choices, a combination of you know delayed investments that should have been made. Like the whole MMT, the whole point behind MMT is actually that it's supposed to help you make good policy choices where you're not artificially constrained. And instead we treat it as basically like a candy, you know, like a trip to the candy store. Uh, my, it's my, one of my biggest challenges with MMT is you're, you're, you're taking that decision-making, putting it on a body of people that I don't have faith that in. you don't have faith in, right? Um, I have faith in them. That's great. I have faith that they can't possibly make <laughs> a, a, a decision that involves cutting spending because they can't get reelected. So I mean, this is so this to me is the flaw in Warren. Mo like Warren is a great friend of mine and somebody I deeply, deeply respect. Warren's retort to that, and I think it's well placed, is well, you either believe in representative democracy or you don't, yeah. right? And I think, unfortunately, the answer that most people would come to at this stage is, no, I don't really believe in it. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, you know, population, populism has a negative connotation because what it's saying is the populist doesn't know what's best for themselves. Right. Populism is democracy. Right. It's, it's, it's the maddening crowd voice, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so, might be, well, they, they, they may well be voting for their own personal best interest, but that may not be the best interest of the, of the collective society. Yeah. Well, I so wanna... I think Chase is saying something slightly different, though, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong in my articulation of this, but what Chase is saying is actually that the representative is supposed to play the role of the elder statesman who, as a representative, makes the choices that are good for everybody, but because of the pressures of our modern election cycle and our modern dynamics, like they want to stay in their job more than anything else. So they're going to give people what they want. Right. And then you have this polarization where people want different things and there's nobody in the middle to kind of navigate that to to kind of say, hey, I'm listening to both sides and this is what we're going to do. And it's a it's a fine line. It's basically everyone pushing and trying to do a grab bag of what's best for their con their side of the their side of the constituency. Yeah, no, it, it, it was fascinating. I was listening to. Um, uh, Deirdre McCloskey's book, um, um, God, what's it called? Uh, um, bourgeoisie, um, oh, I'll come to me in a second. Um, but it, it, her, her whole point actually is, you know, along the lines of basically that 
you know, our objective should be to define, as policymakers at least, we're not, but for policymakers should be to define, you know, like what is actually truly good for society. And instead, they're kind of trapped in a mode where like they're responding to children having temper tantrums. One would argue that the, the, the people who are elected are elected to go and represent the people who voted them there. And the reality is, is that, you know, people act rationally. They put the carrot here, you go that way, put the carrot here, you go over there. If the goal of a politician is not to do public policy, but to get reelected, then he's doing exactly what he's supposed to do and acting totally rationally. Yeah. You know, so I mean, you really can't push back on that. I mean, are they supposed to go and do good deeds? I suppose it'd be nice, but the reality is that's not what we've set up to do over here. Which begs the question, really, um, you two could argue about the truth. So uh, the economy is going to go into the tubes, uh, and, and, and bad things are happening on a forward basis, and all the indicators of that. But does that actually really matter versus what Jerome Powell and the Fed are going to do? Like, who's it more important to focus on? On the Fed, who actually drives the rate, or on the reality of what's happening on the ground? So, Because our politics is the same thing, isn't it? Right. I mean, we're going to be presented with two choices, possibly, and where everyone's against those two choices, but we may as well get them. What do you trade? Do you trade the, the fact we may get this, you know, kind of race that we all don't want, or what is the right answer? So my answer would be both, and I'll clarify that in a second, but I want to hear Chase's response to that. I think, it, I mean, for... The question is, my job as a fiduciary is, what is an investable time horizon? What's going to happen next? What's going to move markets in the in the near term? And I think you're right. Fed policy and what they're going to do and how they're going to communicate is going to really drive what happens today and tomorrow. But having this foundation of looking for cracks and looking for oppor opportunities for really asymmetric moves is really important. And that's that's where... I think you know there's a bit of an art and science of when do you focus on one versus the other. I think that if you've if you've been sitting here and been short equities because you think the credit cycle is going to bite for the last six months, it's been quite painful. Um, and so, just being aware of where you are in the tactical cycle or in the short term cycle is just as important. Yeah, and 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 the reason I would say both is is that ultimately I think the Fed is constrained by the real, right? So if you get the fundamental forecast right, if you're correct in your interpretation of the ramifications of the Fed's monetary policy, that it means we're going to have a contraction that requires them to respond with aggressive cuts, you know, later half of this year into next year, that has important ramifications for how you want to structure your trade. But you've been 100% correct about the dynamic that Jerome Powell sees it as incredibly important that he raise rates and hold in order to conquer some mythical dragon that he is fighting, right? Now, whether that's, a, this is one of the things that I struggle with is, is that inflation or is there something else that you think they're fighting at this point? Because the evidence actually is pretty clear that inflation has decelerated, even on their metrics, inflation, inflation has decelerated sharply. I, I think it's inflation still, because I think that while inflation has come off the boil, no. their mandate's still 2%. And I think that they... Is that a bad mandate? I'm, I'm, actually, it's not a mandate, by the way. It's, it's they, they, made, they made it up. So they made their own mandate. There was The, the government didn't vote. The government only voted for, for two jobs, stable currency and... We, followed, know, we followed New Zealand into lockdown. We followed New Zealand into 2% inflation targeting. I think they can, they can change the mandate if they want to. It's theirs. Um, that is a, a, a fantastic question that I don't have an answer to, but I, you know, is it 3%? I, I think that 
I we know it's not 10, right? right? So, so do they, I, I think this is my personal view is that I think that the Fed would be happy if they could get inflation down to a 3% range and be there. Uh, I think that creating, inflating their way out of the amount of debt that they've taken on is kind of their only path forward. Potential growth in the US is not going to get us out of how much we borrowed. Potential growth, what productivity growth, I mean, maybe AI is going to get us there. Um, call it 1%. Population growth of 1%. You're talking about potential growth of 2%. Um, what, what do we, is that going to be what, what we're, how we're going to get out of the amount of money that we borrowed? I don't think so. I think they're going to try to inflate their way out of it and create this nominal illusion. Question is, my view is that's just going to create a more volatile environment on the inflation side, on the real financial market side. I think there will be accidents along the way. One of those accidents could grab on the nominal side for a period of time, yeah. but I think it'll just come right back up because once you once you go down this path, I don't think you turn it off. Yeah. So, uh, so um, part of me very much agrees with that. I also would highlight though that this is very different than the 1970s, right? And so this is part of the point that I always raise on the 1970s. A huge chunk of the 1970s was every year that you didn't solve the problem, fundamental demand got five percent bigger the next year. Yeah. Right. And so you like needed to really get ahead of it. You needed to really invest. The policies that Volcker and others pursued in the 1970s of hiking interest rates had the exact same predictable impact that we're seeing now, which is supply is restrained relative to what it needs to be. And we're doing a lot of import substitution, which is what we did in the 1970s as well. The difference in the 1970s was that we weren't providing our own oil. So we had an incredible deterioration in the terms of trade and a variety of things. Right. Um, this time around, I think it's much more restrained. And I think perversely, if we continue to behave in this ridiculous fashion, we're actually going to permanently impair demand. We're going to see households not formed. We're going to see children choose not to get married, you know, continue to live with their parents, basically the Italianization of America, in which we move to a much lower node in terms of possibility. That makes it even harder to get out of the debt, is, is my view. Um, um, I mean, the Italian solution is to default your way out of it or effectively which which rebase your currency right which is a reserve currency we can't do you can't so do the, it so the that's way, the problem so the way we do is try to just generate inflation with fiscal spending until the point where our reserve currency's eroded this is all a dalio right i mean that's that's kind of so that's so so i think that's true and i i do think that like that unfortunately is the byproduct of this whole idea that you can inflate your way out of debt like it's never happened successfully in history it right. just means you destroy your currency right. right and by the way that's fine like if that's the path that you want to go down i kind of just operate under the model of like all right if that's really what you want to do and this is what the bitcoiners and everybody else wants them to do it's like yeah yeah that's our objective right now for me i look at that and i say that's not actually a reasonable objective because it doesn't work it's never worked um so why not do something different and uh, let me just push back for a second on your idea there actually is pretty strong evidence that productivity is not actually measured in a compounding function but in an additive function and one of the ways this uh, recent paper of Thomas Philippon sits on this dynamic, right? Um, that actually would help explain a lot of it. But one of the key things in his work is, is that there are actual structural shifts that then can cause that additive level to be unexpectedly large. Yeah. And those would be innovations like the Industrial Revolution or AI that radically shifts productivity in services, which is part of what we're beginning to see, right? Listen, I'm... I am an optimist. 
at heart. Yeah. So I like to believe in human ingenuity and that we're going to um, kind of come up with some new productivity growth that's going to allow us to kind of get to the next level and kind of yep. figure out what we're going to do from there. And I hope that's AI. I don't know. But um, I do think that betting against humans has been a really it's terrible bad bet. bet. Yeah. And so I think that I, I agree with you on that on that scenario. But one of the things that I I would push back from you is say, who is sitting there thinking that I don't feel like there's a, a economic frameworks being like, hey, this is the path we're going down. Let's keep going down that path. It's just what's happened. I, I, I totally agree with you. And I actually think that is the most frustrating and the thing that makes me most pessimistic is why I raise my voice so much against the policy dynamics because there is actually this incredible opportunity for us to seize the day and be as great as we want to, but candidly, we're terrified of it, right? So we have one party that's talking about going back to some mythical world that never really existed, and we have another party that is fundamentally, you know, totally defeatist and basically like, oh, people can't be expected to care for them, therefore, you know, we have to put them on the government dole in some way, shape, or form, right? I think both of those are totally ridiculous solutions, and as we continue to debate one of the two, you We're going to make no progress. No, nothing happens, and that's right. the path you go down. You don't think inflation was a feature, not a bug? Like, no. inflation was plan A, plan B, and plan C. It was a yeah. dumb plan, if that's it's the not. case. It's the only way to get out of, out of, the, out of debt. You it, can either grow or you can inflate. I mean, that's kind of it. You can't inflate your way out of debt. I think, no. it's, I think it's their only path, in a way. The way I you mean, reduce it, debt to GDP is to go and grow, is inflate faster than you're adding to debt, which is that possible? Maybe not, but that's, that is what you're going to do. Um, and, 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 and the Fed, I think, hoped to get a three inflation, not a nine. And if they got the three, then they could have kept rates low, had a negative real rate, which would support the economy, and that would kind of work. They, they, they were hoping they wouldn't get the, the five-plus number. And once they got that, they were kind of hosed. Why? I mean, in all seriousness, like it was, it was the reaction, too. It was the hiking of interest because rates. Because at a three inflation, you can kind of hide it, no one sees it. At a five, it becomes material. And the problem is that inflation, you have this two, you, there's two jobs the Fed has to do, right? They have the stable currency on one side, you have the unemployment on the other that in theory balance out versus each other. And the reality is that inflation is much more problematic for the country as a whole. You look at like quintiles, the bottom quintile, they get public support, they don't care about inflation. Top quintile, they could have enough money anyways. So you've 60 in the middle, if you have inflation on them and create negative income for them, that's a bad result for 60%. And if you have unemployment go from three and a half to four and a half, well, that's really, really, really bad for 1% of the people, but let's call it five times worse, 10 times worse for that one. Well, that's 10 versus 60, so you're still better off managing the, the inflation yeah, so, back down so, again. So that sounds good, but the actual empirical data very much disputes that, right? So when you look at the components of the misery index, and there's been research that's done around this, the impact of an increase in unemployment in terms of life outcomes, people dying and everything else is infinitely worse, not infinitely, but dramatically worse than the inflation components, so even what, if we're running. Fine. So and what, by the way, let's what be ratio do you want to run then? You have 1% versus 60%, what ratio do you want to run? That's, 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 I, think, that's, I think that you're right, but I think that in reality, people are solving for what Harvey's talking about and trying to do. I think the Fed is trying to go down that path. I think that the challenge is, and, and to push a little bit back on what you're saying, is life expectancy in the U.S. isn't isn't better in an inflationary world. Like our life expectancy is dropping like a like a stone. Well, and, it's been dropping before the yeah, inflation, right? I, so I, I mean, I, that's I what I'm saying. Like, is inflation 
What we do know is, is that when people lose their jobs, they, they have a dramatically increased rate of suicide, they have a dramatically reduced life expectancy, the stress components associated with it are far greater. I, I, but now we're, in a, now we're in a low, low, or low unemployment rate, and none of those things aren't better either. So if you're looking at these things and saying, are we okay, like continuing these trends by inducing in unemployment for a period of time? So again, I just want to be clear. I don't think inflation, I, I think inflation was never the plan. I don't right. think it was ever the solution. And I know everybody likes to say that, but as Chase pointed out, you, you actually can't do it with a reserve currency. Right? You just can't. Nobody lets you because everybody else is doing exactly what we're seeing. They manage their currencies against you. I think that's... What you're, what you're really doing when you're inflating is you're reducing the value of the labor content that you're putting in. Theoretically, that raises ultimately your participation and your ability to export to the rest of the world because you've devalued your currency over time. And we're just not seeing that. Yeah, I think the inflation has another objective in a way, whether or not they state it outright or not. But one of the things that we've seen post-COVID is a dramatic drop in labor force for older people, people retiring early after COVID. One way to get those people back in the labor force is by inflating them back in. Basically, I've saved a million dollars. That's enough for me to retire. I'm retiring. If all of a sudden that million dollars isn't enough to pay for your food and pay for yes, your Yes, the stock market would do it. Yeah, I mean, that, that would do it as well. But I also think that making everything 10% more expensive forces those people to come back to work. It, it, it can, unless, of course, we have their benefits indexed to inflation. And we also then- A lot of these people are retiring prior to- uh, I don't think the evidence is strong for that, actually. Most of the evidence is that people are delaying retirement longer and longer. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, we've seen- the fact that the boomers are retiring at a quicker pace than expected. Yes, that's what- There's a small detail, ignore that. That's not a small detail. That's exactly. A, no, like what we what we saw was a very meaningful outward shift in people's or a decline in people's willingness to participate once they have disabilities, because the risk of COVID has dramatically increased the risk of their job turning fatal for them. Right? We've raised the cost of participating in the labor force, and and, and, and we're saying, and we're trying and they're they, getting benefits that are. Yeah, they're, they're, they're protected. And not only that, we actually have then provided a further subsidy to those who have assets, which is just another way of saying we old people. Plumped up the assets of the boomers who own most of the assets, and therefore they can retire earlier because they have this bigger net it's thing not to the, work it's, with. It's not that we've plumped up the assets. Well, right? Fed did, sure. Harley. Mike, well, let's look at the correlation of, of, of Fed balance Fed literally to, does. To, to the total value of, of, of spoos and, uh, and bonds. It's a straight line up. It, but it's not. When you print the money, it goes somewhere. The idea was to print the money and have it go to, to wages. It didn't. It went to assets. Yeah. I, I, again, I actually don't totally agree with you, but we're, we, we're not going to resolve that here. The, the, the point that I would actually make is, is that the return on those assets, particularly the fixed income assets, are now at a point that most of those boomers or many of those boomers no longer have to even sell assets. They can just live off of, if, they, if they're rolling into much higher bond portfolios, they can just live off it now. We've given old people a huge raise. Yes. Public, public policy bad, because you should be d pushing the money down. So we're doing the opposite of what you want to do. We're giving boomers a chance to make the asset allocation that they probably should have already okay. made that they have probably hadn't. Correct. I mean, I don't know that for a fact, but no, that's I, think why that's, I haven't I, looked at the data, but that makes And that is actually sense. one of the things that I think is, is so we, we are empirically seeing it with the rotation out of bank deposits, lower yielding bank deposits into higher yielding money market funds. 
What we have not yet really begun to see is the recognition from the boomers that they should be rotating out of equities, which offer a you know 1.6% dividend yield. I mean, let's be realistic. The dividend yield on the S&P 500 has almost never been lower, yeah. right? So we're actually looking at an environment in which equities are yielding less relative to bonds in almost any time in history. So Chase, Chase so, so, so Mike and I are going to go and probably kill each other over, over, over transitory and the fact that it is, is the fact that over a long time horizon, everything's transitory. So we'll ignore that small detail. What specifically, you know, from this conversation in general or more broadly, where is the value proposition in your view? Like, where should we be investing? What should we be doing? I, I mean, I tend What's to... What's the long price? price? Aside from the one-year, one-year. <laughs> um, I think volatility is at the wrong price. We have... Which one? Every, all well, the of moves at 140 and the VIX is 17, so... Did you both be wrong or? I'm just saying holistically over the next decade, I think there's going to be opportunity trading volatility. And that speaks my <clears throat> my book a little bit, but that's by design. I think that what we talked about is this bimodal outcome in a number of different places. The, the rebounds and the adjustments that take place into and out of recessions are going to be faster, more aggressive. They're going to have bigger impacts. So I think that volatility right now, I mean, right now, I I think that equity vol, FX vol is really attractive, especially relative to fixed income vol. But for the reasons I, I mentioned before, fixed income vol, it realizes. I mean, what happened in March was insane. That was, it was absolutely what What just happened today yeah. was insane. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, it was, today was almost the flip of what, it's not quite, but like today was a really, really big move in the front end yeah. in response to, you know, a combination of slightly better than expected jobs and the GDP numbers and, and GDP deflator components coming in hotter than you would have expected. PCE core came in at five instead of 4.9, right? And this gives additional ammunition to exactly the point that you're making, that the Fed wants to hold rates. And what Chase and I, I think, are both saying is they're ultimately probably going to be forced as the actions and slowdown that's occurred in the economy truly begin to manifest. We're particularly seeing that tension in the credit market at the low end and the smaller companies. I think the reason it's harder to, I mean, we all go, we always go back to 2008 because it's the most recent one. And I think it's different, right? We're in a very different cycle, different economy from back then. We don't have the leverage in the system. It's not, it's not a underlying credit problem per se, like it was in 2008. Well, the banks don't have the same leverage. Exactly. That's what I'm, I'm just saying. Yeah. The, the problem back then was the banks had the leverage problem. That freezes up the banking system. So you can have, I, do, I just don't think we've had the same leverage in the overall system. I think there is a lot of leverage in the system, but it's been spread out and not as concentrated in the banks, which ultimately seized up and caused a huge ripple effect. So let me push back on that for a little bit, because first of all, I actually, I, I actually kind of agree with it, but I also think that there's important wrinkles around it. And yeah. so if, if I go back and I look at what actually happened in 2008, you know, the, the irony is, is that, as you know, by the time we got around to 2011, 2012, we discovered that the recoveries for AAA, RMBS ended up being close to par and, you know, everything ended up working out. But the tension in the system as the event actually occurred did fundamentally the same thing that we're talking about with the one-year, one-year rate. It took a AAA RMBS and pulled it down because of that uncertainty. The premium that you had to offer somebody to take that risk, where they're saying, well, maybe it's 60 or maybe it's par, 
asset pricing uncertainty, I just don't know the answer to it, right? And so as those fell in value, the collateral values in turn fell, which meant that you had to with you had to reduce the leverage in the system. That leverage there's less of, right? So there's less of let's take the AAA, you know, lever it up 60x and turn a 1% return into a 60% return, right? What we're seeing now is more like 15 times leverage, but it's still a lot of leverage. Let's be really clear on that. The flip side of, I think, what's actually happening this time and where I think the risk is going to be, and we're seeing this in things like commercial real estate, is the risk is the recoveries end up being much worse. Yeah. Right. So the severity comes in the markdown as compared to the collateral period and the asset pricing uncertainty that emerges from too much leverage. Mike, I thought you were going to say, link, link the two together and say the, the mark to market on the AAA mortgage bonds 15 years ago, the, they were still money good, but they marked them at 80 bucks, is the same as Silicon Valley Bank having a rock solid treasury marked at 80 as opposed to par. Oh, I think there's a lot so of So in both cases, there was never any credit risk per se. It was, it was a mark to market issue that drove the deleveraging of the system. So I, I think there's actually remarkable similarities between them. Again, remember, you know, what caused the system to fail was two separate components, and, and the leverage that ended up being in the banking system largely involved securitizations that had been sold out the balance sheet, and then due to the fraud components were put back onto the balance sheet, right? So the, it was the mortgage putbacks that really sank the banks. It wasn't the, you know, it wasn't the fact that they were inherently levered, it's that they ended up being much more levered than they actually thought they were, that there was this negative equity event that sat out well, there. Well, there were the realized contract. losses in the mortgage market. The lower, lower capital structure items did get wiped out. Uh, but those, by and large, were actually priced for those components, right? So, I mean, the best trade that was put on well, in the entire... bond price trading at par going to zero is priced for that, but... Well, so me, but, but, but let's use a perfect example of that right now. I mean, the, C, the CMBS issues, if you actually look at what's happening to the CMBS market right now, it's, it's, I think the technical term is chaos, Right? I mean, you know, the 16s came at 95 in February. They're at 79 now? Yeah, 79. Yeah. So, right? I mean, I, I, I think the big difference now is from the banking system is, is a duration issue as opposed to a credit issue. But um, that becomes the interesting question is because their balance sheets are impaired and now their credit lending activity has to be reduced in response to that impaired balance sheet, does that in turn create its own credit cycle? Likely. I think that's a good question, and I think it's it's likely to happen. One of the things that was interesting in the in the SLU survey, more so than the the tight credit, was the the lack of demand. Yes, uh, totally to me agree. that was the thing that was probably the most you know new information that we got out of that survey. And I think it does lend to this idea that there's one of two things happening. One is there's no demand because people are not people are worried about the future. The recession is the most forecasted recession. I don't know about ever, but in my my lifetime, and uh, theoretically, we're supposed to be getting better at forecasting them. So, like that shouldn't be a surprise, but yeah, right, yeah, exactly. Well, we're getting worse because yeah. we it's, we forecasted it eighteen months ago. Yeah, exactly. Here. Um, uh, so I think that either either we're headed to a recession because of this lack of demand, or there's just no there's no impetus, and we're in this kind of holding pattern for a long time. But eventually, I think that bites. So that's where I think credit becomes super interesting, right? And like we've talked a little bit about this dynamic. I think that demand component is actually demand at a price. Yeah. Right? Okay. And so like there's a ton of demand for actually refinancing debt yeah. 
that we know has to hit in 24-25, right? All the paper that was financed in 2020 and 2021, we had half a trillion dollars of high-yield bond issuance and an equivalent amount slightly larger in the loan space, um, half a trillion dollars in 2021. In 2022, we saw $100 billion, right? Because nobody wanted to borrow at the higher rates. On a year-to-date basis, I think we're sitting at about 60 in terms of high yield. It's been slightly higher in IG. But basically what's happening is, is all these companies are looking at these rates and saying, if we refinance into this, this is a death sentence. Yeah. We're done, yeah. right? So we're not going to, like, we have no demand at this price, even though we desperately need this credit. Yeah. Anecdotally, you see it in, you see it in property developers, you see it in corporates, you see it everywhere. And basically you're in this holding pattern because they've locked in two and a half, three percent rates for five years, that five years is going to come up and then what's going to happen. And so I think that's why we're in this kind of holding pattern. And that's why I say it's kind of, I think that, you know, is the one year, one year point the right one? I don't know, but I I believe the credit crunch is going to bite. Question is when, I don't know exactly where this is. I think the consumer has been extremely strong and extremely reliable, um, but I think that's peaking, changing, excess savings are being drawn down, starting to see cracks in the employment uh, situation. And I think if that if that rolls over faster, if you start to see employment slow down aggressively, that brings that credit crunch forward. If the if the economy can kind of stay surviving on this cheap credit that they flocked in for a number of years longer, and that doesn't cause a an employment contraction, which then you can kind of see this last for another couple of years. And in that case, I think that one year, one year is a great place to be paid, but if it gets brought forward and that's kind of the, that's, that's really I totally what we're agree. trying to like kind of figure out is like, what is the probabilities of those two events happening? I, I, I think that's, I think that is exactly the issue. And I think that this is what makes this time period so interesting is, is that we're looking at, you're hundred percent correct, Harley. We totally agree with you that the one year, one year rate at 360 is actually possibly the one price that I guarantee you it's not going to be in a year, Right. It's either going to be zero or it's going to be five. And resolving the tension between those two is, is really what it boils down to. The Fed wants to keep it at five, right? That much is actually very, very clear. I want a pony, right? Um, whether they get their pony or whether I get my pony is ultimately going to you know, resolve this conflict. So Chase, looking at the cognitive dissonance of the, of the stock market versus the bond market, when you say that vols are too low, are you saying that you want to go and buy one, two, three-month options and trade the gamma every day because the market's realizing more? Are you saying you want to buy like Chase a five-year? for that. Yeah. Are you saying you want to buy like a, you want to buy like a five-year variant swap and just put it away? Well, I don't know if I want either of those things. What I think is mispriced is you know people look at vol and they trade it on implied realized basis, which is those two outcomes that you talked about, but one short-term, one's long-term. I think that one of the things that human beings which translates to markets have a really hard time doing is, is having an idea about large changes. And vol markets are priced for what you're talking about, but they also price outcomes, right? So right now, whatever, one month S&P vol is trading, I, I'm, don't quote me on this, but like 15 when I walked in here. Sure, sounds right. So, so, so 15 in one month S&P vol. Quite like a 3% move. Could I see a 3% move in the next month? We've got Fed, CPI, debt ceiling. I see it in both ways. Debt ceiling gets resolved. Fed sounds dovish. CPI comes in easier. We're going to, you know, we could lift off and go to, you know, go 40, 46. I mean, maybe not that much in a month, but we could go, we go on the path to 4,600 pretty quickly. And I just think that, I think that the, the market's not pricing this, these kind of 
varying degrees, and we're seeing it in currencies. I think more more so than anywhere else. I mean, uh, dollar yen vol one year dollar yen vol is trading, let's just say ten percent roughly equates to an eight percent break even either side of the straddle. How many times did we move eight percent last year, up or down? Nine, nine times. We just moved up eight percent, reset your saddle of up eight percent, and that's within a year. So you're getting these huge moves, these huge swings in these currencies, and volatility is priced for. Hey, implied realized. You bought implied vol at ten last year and realized came in at you know ten and a half. It's like doesn't sound like that great of a trade, but we're getting actual movement in macro asset classes for the first time in a decade, and people aren't adjusting to that. Well, at the same time, and this is one of the things you always point out, interest rates have largely harmonized across most regions to the point that like the forwards are not crazy, right? Except so, Japan. Even in Japan, I mean, it's pretty big. Once you put it in the cross-currency basis, it's gigantic. Yeah, it's. I mean, it, it's big, but it's not really that crazy relative to some of the dynamics that we've seen in the past. Do you have an opinion on dollar yen, or you just think think it's un massive uncertainty? I mean, I. It's it's kind of a, it's caught between these two modes, right? It's trading with U.S. rates, but it's also going to trade with a flight to quality safety metric. I tend to think that, I mean, this is my optimistic view on Japan, is that they have finally entered a new inflationary cycle, right? We've been in this cycle of 0% inflation where workers are okay, not getting a wage increase, so the corporates don't pass on higher prices, and so then the, the workers don't demand more money. So you get this 0% cycle, spiral, I don't know what you want to call it, but more of a cycle than a spiral. But I think now, because of whether it's COVID or something, but there seems to be supply side shocks to that inflation metrics. Japan has tried so hard to push on the demand side to get inflation higher, and it hasn't really worked. Abenomics didn't work in getting inflation that much higher. Got but the it, currency up. It did. Down as case got, be. And, and that didn't really help on the inflation side, right? I mean, you get the currency weaker, you're like, oh, that should cause I mean, the inflation. The currency fell 50%, right? right? Theoretically, for an island importing nation, that's supposed to, you know, cause right. inflation. exactly right. So I think what... I think what you're seeing is you're seeing more push on the demand side or on the supply side. So you're seeing uh, the government kind of embrace wage wage prices. You saw the, the, the wage negotiations be as high as they've been in decades. Um, and so I believe that that is actually a positive thing for Japanese inflation. Question is, we're still trying to understand how this BOJ administration is going to react to that. Um, it seems like they're like, we're going to wait till we see the whites of its eyes before we actually respond and do something. But I do think that that you know removal of yield curve control and the eventual move higher in rates in Japan is coming because I do think that inflation is not going to be, but it's not a transitory spike. Do you think if they do that, and this is part of my concern with that narrative, right? So do you think if they do that, that we actually end up snuffing it out yet again? <laughs> it's, a, it's a big risk. I think they'll be very slow and very methodical. Um, I think that they know that. <laughs> so I think that that's... Well, I, that's I think that's been the obvious lesson, right, is, yeah. is that Japan has resisted the U.S.'s approach of let's veer quickly towards much higher rates. I think Japan would probably look at what's happening in the United States. And this is, again, you know, kind of my core response is I actually think we saw some of the same dynamics emerging. If you actually look at the inflation or wage characteristics, many of the things that we're experiencing today were very much in play in the 2016 through 2018 time period, right? We were already starting to see the wage pressures. We were already starting to see the vacancies to unemployment ratio begin to rise in a manner that we saw post-pandemic in kind of an extreme form. 
creating conditions for much lower unemployment, et cetera, which you know, we've effectively just matched what we had pre-pandemic. We haven't moved to any new lower level. There's been a shift in the composition of it. It's much more low-end um, you know, physical labor that is in short supply as compared to the knowledge workers, right? Like we have no shortage of quote unquote white collar workers at this stage. I think Japan's also just, if you get into the technicals, CPI is very tough to get higher. It's 25% of CPIs. And, uh, well, it's a big part of its shelter. And you're not seeing pressure like you saw in the US, right? So you don't have that same CPI pressure because of shelter. And you're not seeing that you know, in the U.S., we saw such a big jump in, in the shelter inflation, and we're not seeing that in Japan. Well, that's one of the things that, I, that is so frustrating to me is, is that, you know, again, this is Harley, you know, Harley and I have this debate all the time. You know, our construction of inflation mechanically was lagging on the upside, and everybody screamed about that. And now they, of course, point to that inflation, and they're like, oh, there's no way they can bring it down, even as it's horribly lagging on the other direction, right? Yeah. So we know that the inflation number is almost like the one-year, one-year. It's the one thing we know it actually isn't, right? Um but it feels to me like people want the pain because they're each individually experiencing elements of their purchasing patterns that are, are very, very different. Okay, so to summarize your takeaway, you think, and this is where I am as well, that we're currently in an environment, while certainly things like rate vol at 140 on the move seem very high relative to where they were. If I look at things like swap vol in forward pricing, et cetera, it's not particularly crazy given the tension that exists. And you would extend that then into the related asset classes of equities, credit, and because credit to me is the area where actually I see the tightest volatility pricing. Credit spreads feel the most improperly priced of almost everything I see. Yeah, I would say I agree with that. I feel like fixed income market vol is elevated, but justifiably so. What I don't understand is why other asset class vol is not justifiably elevated as it should be as well. Yeah, or not elevated as it justifiably should be, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's ultimately right. I mean, that's where I'm putting all my emphasis is trying to figure out ways to express those traits. I think the thing that we've learned over the last year really is that accidents happen. Yeah, we're in a new economic regime. The Fed is feeling its way through this process, and I know it's easy to to think about you know what does Jay Powell want to do? What are they What are they thinking about? But this is a new dynamic for the Fed. Fed's never acted in an excess reserve environment. This is a new monetary policy regime and we're all trying to figure that out i mean i haven't been i've been doing this for i right, 17 years so i've been doing it a while but there's people who have been doing this for 50 years that have never never experienced this you know excess reserve regime right and so i think that there's going to be things that they have to feel their way through and i think that's and, 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 and that's exactly, where accidents yeah. happen it's where we just yeah. don't know and, and, so and that is actually right so I, I love the way that you describe that right because this is part of what i emphasize for people as well which is Accidents happen on a continuous basis. The question is how vulnerable are you to that accident, right? And the thing that frightens me about what we're seeing right now, you know, if I go back to 2011 and I look at the dynamics of the debt ceiling, for example, 2011 ironically was happening in an environment in which I would argue that we were relatively robust because we'd already spiked unemployment. We'd already depressed demand. We'd already killed the housing cycle. We'd already, we are already, already, right? It couldn't do that much more damage to it. And in many ways, it actually created a catalyst for stimulus in the opposite direction, right? It started some form of rationality return to it. Um, we saw, by the way, how it impacted Europe. Europe went into terrible outcomes for a while. 
And that's one of the narratives that I'm actually hearing a lot of. Japan is, is certainly one of the areas that I hear this in reference to. Should people rotate out of U.S. equities and go buy the, the, the emerging markets because that's the safe place to be? Um, I don't know. I mean, U.S. equities are expensive, I would say. Their you know, PE is 18. Let's just call it yeah. that, roughly. Uh, I mean, Europe's dramatically outperformed. Europe looks like NASDAQ, not the S&P. Yeah. Uh, you've seen this huge outperformance in Europe so far. So I think that is a narrative that's happening. Nikkei just moved out to all-time high. So this is happening. This is real life. But I think what, what your question is, should you move to emerging markets, it's tough for me to sit here and say, I'm I'm worried about accidents and an emerging credit crunch. Go buy right. emerging, Go buy emerging market markets. I totally agree. So with you. there's like a there's there's a a timing sequencing of yeah. this that I think will will come to fruition. I, 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 th that's where I fall out on it as well. And I, I do think and and again, Harley, your framing in terms of the one year one year, I think is actually almost a perfect articulation of this. We've got this incredible tension that's sitting right in front of us. I think both Chase and I would come around and say, we totally agree. And there's markets that don't reflect that tension, right? And that, to me, feels like the opportunity set. It sounds like you're in the same place. And Harley, of course, is wrong. Um, but uh, Chase, this was fantastic. Um, thank you so much for joining us. If people want to um, subscribe to either Eric's writings, he puts out a weekly, the, the firm puts out regular research reports, how can they gain access to that? I know that you guys are only available as a fund to accredited investors, but... Yeah, if you send a, a note to... Um go to our website, OneRiverAssetManagement.com. Um, there's a link there that'll allow you to reach out to, to somebody that can keep, put you in the right touch with the right people. Fantastic. So, okay. Thank you. Great. Chase, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. It was great. Simplify Asset Management, Inc. is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Simplify Asset Management, Inc. and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. SEC registration does not constitute an endorsement of the firm by the commission, nor does it indicate that the advisor has attained a particular level of skill or ability. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy. This website and information are not intended to provide investment, tax, or legal advice. This content is solely for informational purposes and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. These materials are made available on an as-is basis without representation or warranty. The information contained in these materials has been obtained from sources that Simplify Asset Management, Inc. believes to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. This information is only current as of the date indicated and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Neither the author nor Simplify Asset Management, Inc. undertakes to advise you of any changes in the views expressed herein. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Unless otherwise noted, any performance returns presented in these materials reflect hypothetical performance. Hypothetical strategies and indices presented are unmanaged, do not reflect any fees, expenses, transaction costs, commissions, or taxes, and one cannot invest directly in any of these. The results presented should not be viewed as indicative of the advisor's skill and do not reflect the performance results that were achieved by any particular client. During this period, the advisor was not providing advice using this model, and clients' results may have been materially different. Hypothetical model results have many inherent limitations, some of which, but not all, are described herein. One of the limitations of hypothetical performance results is that they are generally prepared with the benefit of hindsight. In addition, hypothetical trading does not involve financial risk, and no hypothetical trading record can completely account for the impact of financial risk in actual trading.